Maybe they just douse everything in Yeti scent, and then the polar bears know that <laughs> stay away. Don't mess it's with been Yeti. claimed already. Yeah. So. Is that where the Yetis yeah. are in yeah. Alaska? We don't really know. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. Welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, first we'll talk about wind turbine wakes and whether some new studies regarding this and new technology tracking it will be able to save millions uh, for those uh, with wind farms, uh, including some of our farmers here in the Midwest. Uh, obviously, the wake produced by wind farm is a significant um it's a significant variable for other wind other wind turbines in the formation. So we'll talk through uh, whether that could really improve efficiency going forward. We'll talk a little bit about Alaska and the value of wind energy there. And then we're going to talk a bunch about stocks. Uh, there's a lot going on, obviously, with the uh, turn of the new year here and a real recent plunge here in the U.S. Uh, in the stock market. So we'll talk through some of the new financial guidance and what we see for the future and whether these supply chain issues will continue to persist and push some of these stocks even further down. So before we get going, I want to remind you, sign up for Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter and podcast update. Uh, if you want to stay on top of everything wind energy, definitely sign up for that. You'll find it in the show notes and Rosemary's YouTube channel. She continues to put out great content each week. You'll find uh, sign up links for that as well in the show notes. So, uh, Rosemary, let's start here with wakes. Um, obviously, this is something that it's hotly debated with uh, vertical axis wind turbines, uh, maybe more so than horizontal axis, but it, it affects both of these wind tur- turbines uh, the same. I mean, what's what's this new focus on wind turbine wakes and how could this save so much money? Yeah, so I mean, the loss of energy in the wake of a wind turbine, it's, you know, it's um, non-negotiable. That's something that's definitely going to happen no matter what kind of wind turbine that you have here, um, you know, whether it's horizontal axis, vertical axis, or some other kind of futuristic wind turbine. The point is that you're taking energy out of the wind and converting it to electricity. So there must be less energy behind it. And um, so, you know, for <laughs> on that very basic level, this is not a surprise to, to anybody who's worked with wind energy, you know, ever in the history of them. We've always known that. Real quick to sum this up um, for those who aren't familiar, this is if you took two wind turbines, put them one right in front of the other, say the wind was blowing 20 miles per hour. As that wind goes through the first wind turbine, you know, pushing pushing the, the blades around and producing energy, um, it's going to reduce that 20 miles per hour of wind to some lower number and just have less energy to push the second turbine. Is that, is that an accurate yep. de- depiction of it? Yeah, so a modern um, horizontal axis wind turbine take out a little more than 50% of the energy in the wind, but the one behind it won't see that full loss because there's a lot of mixing from outside air. You know, some wind comes comes around and, and combines okay. with it. So, yeah, if you, like, if you put them really tight, close, packed together, one behind the other, then you would see less and less energy the further back you go. And that's the reason why, like if you look at a wind farm, they're quite spaced out. Usually you'll put like five or six diameters between them so that there is enough space for the the wind to recombine and give a decent wind speed for the one behind. 
Yeah. And I think that this new research is a lot about trying to do it smarter than that. So instead of just putting, you know, heaps of space in between wind turbines, how can we understand how the wake is um, is behaving, how much energy is in it at what point so that you can try and pack them closer together so you could use less land and still get um, still get an efficient use of each turbine. When we see pictures of wind turbines being deployed offshore, they're in this like this grid pattern. Like <laughs> it just seems like there's one t- wind turbine in front of another in front of another. That's not the way they would do it, right? I mean, you wouldn't put on an XY grid and and evenly space them out. It, that would seem like to be your maximum amount of power loss doing it that way. How how do they determine where to, to space these turbines? Well, if they're lined up in a grid in rows, you know, parallel with the wind prevailing wind direction, then you're right. That would be the dumbest, <laughs> dumbest way to arrange a grid. And, and often when you see these studies about, um, about wind farm losses and especially the ones that refer to vertical axis wind farms being better, that will be their comparison case, like the literal stupidest way that you could design a wind farm. <laughs> but I mean, um, onshore, the wind farms, uh, the, the wind turbine locations, are irregular because they're micro-sided. So, you know, they have to take into account every small bump, um, every small hill, uh, a bit of forest, because that really affects how the, the wind flows around the obstacles. But offshore, it's flat. So I think you would see a more regular pattern offshore, but they won't be just lined up one behind each other in the prevailing wind direction. <laughs> that would be okay. incredibly stupid. Could they just use height? To counteract some of these challenges offshore, just make the front row, you know, 400 feet tall. The second row, just increase the height of the pylon so it's the same turbine sitting at 500 feet tall on the back. You know, just make it like a movie theater yeah. <laughs> so they could all get their, their good view of the wind. You can do that, but people usually don't. And it's mostly because you just get such a huge benefit from going up higher, you know, because of um, wind shear, the wind speed increases with the, the height so above, you want to put them all above sea level. As high as they could anyway. Yeah, you, you put them all as mm. high as you, you can because you get more benefit from that than the you might gain from, you know, putting some lower because yeah it's lower it's out of the wake but it's also seeing a lower wind speed to start with so overall people are nearly always using the same height tower and across a whole wind farm okay so then if you stagger them horizontally obviously the turbines are going to turn slightly left and right to capture the wind properly right they want to align themselves with it Um, is that where some of the, the issues come in where even if you stagger them and they theoretically shouldn't have like conflict at all you know because you know, row one is, you know, like a checkerboard pattern with row two, and then they're very far, you know, directly behind the next one. But if each one's pitching a little bit different now, do they start to line up again and in, in a negative way? Yeah, you, you've kind of highlighted what's the complicated part. And the the wake, it's kind of roughly understood how wakes work, but the real specifics of it, it's not that well understood, especially when you've got different wakes interacting with, with each other and you've got complex terrain. So that's why there's still, you know, at least 10% gains to be made by getting smarter about this. And you can actually do things like complicated things like wake steering, where you don't just move the turbine to optimize the power that it sees. You think about the wind farm as a whole and you change the direction of some, you know, some of the upwind turbines might yaw to be in a slightly less than optimal wind direction from their power 
production point of view, but that means you can steer the wake away from a turbine behind it. So it's getting more power and now the wind farm as a whole is optimized. So that's a really promising ongoing area of research where we're starting to see wind farms using these um, these techniques and seeing big gains. And I think there's still still more to go, but it's really cool because it's, you know, it's free, free extra power. You don't <laughs> it doesn't really cost too much to get get smarter about the way you're operating. Rosemary, what are, what are the costs though? There must be some sort of negative side to doing this. Is it structural? Like you start yawn into the wind sideways. Is it change the loading on the blades? It would, but if you're, um, for the most part, you're making them produce less power so that there will be less less loads for the, the ones on the front. So I don't think it's a big okay. structural problem, although definitely it would okay. need to be um, considered. But I think that the biggest cost is going to be for all the control engineers and um, data scientists that you you need to get working on it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a cost, but I think it's, it's more like of an upfront cost figuring out how to do it and it probably to some extent needs to happen on a site-by-site basis. I don't think that, you know, GE or Siemens is going to figure out, oh, you know, this is the the algorithm that we use now to have a you know optimized wake steered wind farm and then roll it out around the globe i would expect that you would see um yeah you, you would see it have to be reproduced in most sites and so alan this this project this new research project uh, the awaken project um they're trying to really understand these wakes not just on like a micro level but potentially up to what is it 20 miles downstream yeah. am i reading that right yeah. Yeah, they are. I mean, it, it, and the only reason they can even look at it today is because the CFD software has gotten powerful enough and the computers are powerful enough to try to run that because they're looking at sort of tip vortices and, and all the turbulence that comes off the, the blades in front of the next turbine. That's a complicated set of equations. And if you start looking at hundreds of turbines and, and pretty soon we're talking about thousands of turbines offshore, you can think about the how complicated that situation can be because you're not looking at it as just one wind direction. You're looking at it probably multiple wind sets of wind directions and amplitudes and uh, even times a day, right? So pressure density will change. So there's a lot of variables there. And uh, you know, we do CFD, some CFD analysis uh, in-house here. And, and that's one of the things is it's like, it takes a lot of horsepower to, to do these uh, CFD analysis. So if you're doing 100 turbines, you're going to need someone in like NREL, someone who has the supercomputer to, to do it uh, just because. And I think Rosemary is right. You're going to have to instrument really with the, the, the solution is to instrument a bunch of turbines and then process all that data and then try a couple of different feedback loops to see if you can optimize over time. I don't think Rosemary, maybe I'm wrong. You're just not going to get a hand at a set of equations. You're going to upload them to the turbines and away they go. I didn't seem like what's, what the answer is here. It's a more of an iterative approach or an empirical approach to solving this problem. Yeah, I think they'll, they'll get faster at it, you know, as they learn in the first few wind farms. And I think um, in the the article that I read, they're using a lot of instrumentation as well, like physical physical measurements and drones and stuff to to actually look at what's physically happening. Because obviously, you know, CFD, yeah. Yeah, CFD model on its own is is not going to give you good confidence. But I do think it's going to be really important with offshore wind, especially because you know you've got a big area of the the ocean and. 
um, you want to know how, how close together you can put the, the wind farms because, you know, one developer might put in their wind farm and have their, their business case based on what they expect to get from it. And then, you know, in 10 years' time, if someone builds a wind farm just up upwind from you, then <laughs> that, that might have a huge, huge impact. So I, I do think that, yeah, in the future, as, you know, wind has to expand so rapidly over the next um, 10 years, we are really going to be more concerned about how close together we can put wind turbines than we have in the past where they were just going on farmland and it wasn't so relevant to get, you know, the very maximum kind of energy density of a surface area. So in the first steps of the Awaken project, it sounds like, like you mentioned, Alan, that they're using laser and uh, radar beams. Um, but then in the final uh, step, they're going to use specialized aircraft and they're going to fly sensors from plant to plant because that's going to give them additional range. Do you, I, I, don't, I don't understand what that looks like. Do you understand no, what that I, means? No, I, I read that and I didn't understand the purpose <laughs> of the airplane. To me, to me, maybe it's, maybe it's less expensive. Maybe it's easier to do it that way because LIDARs are not cheap. You don't necessarily want to instrument every turbine with a LIDAR, but maybe you do. And I, and there, there, there comes a, a, a megawatt size plant and maybe it's eight megawatts 10 megawatts 15 megawatts in which the lidar is inconsequential to the cost of the turbine but that but the power output benefits totally pay for the lidar so you may start seeing lidar uh, become common equipment just to solve that problem question is how to get the data back i think that's the bigger question because you're talking about terabytes of data out in the middle of the ocean there's no internet in the ocean uh, so maybe Elon Musk is going to make a fortune on, you know, uh, the upload downloads to all these LIDARs because there's really no way to do it. I think it's the problem, right, is how do you – if you're going to take all this data, you have to have some way to process it and understand it. But you're talking about literally terabytes of data daily of information, and that's the limitation. It's not that we don't have the, the computing power. It's just don't – where are you going to put all that stuff? <laughs> You know, Jeff Bezos will make a fortune on this on the AWS servers, probably. Well, moving on uh, and sticking with uh, wind speed, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Alaska. So, Alan, it looks like Alaska has some pretty good uh, offshore wind average speeds. So they've got some areas that get, you know, well above that, like eight meter per second. Uh, I don't know if that's a threshold. Um, but very comparable to a lot of what you see over in uh, California, offshore there. They have a number of sites that get above uh, 9, 10, consistently at, at 90 meters uh, height. Um, Alan, I mean, what is your thought on Alaska? Is that going to be a realistic place to put these, or is that environment going to be maybe not worth the trouble, considering what we talked with uh, Dr. Who um, <laughs> about you know the combination of cold and uh, potentially, you know, pretty pretty wet. Yeah, the the winds aren't bad off the coast of Alaska. I, I, the the issue for Alaska is there's a lot of small communities uh, that are remote that you can't get to in the wintertime except via airplane. And in order to keep the light and whatever heat they have on, they have they bring in diesel. They fly in diesel all the time. In fact, I've worked on some projects uh, for Alaska diesel delivery. And you don't really think about that in the States because, you know, you just turn the heat on. Everything's delivered to you via pipe or, or, or transmission line in these remote places of Alaska. That's not the case at all. And, and having an alternative 
energy source like a, a smaller wind turbine it can make a big difference on how much diesel you need to transport, ship, burn uh, at, at these remote communities. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I guess the question for Rosemary is, is it really possible to, to put wind turbines in such a harsh, harsh place reliably? Because if, you, if you're not going to have the diesel delivered, you, you, you really need to have that wind turbine work. Is it even really possible in these really cold temperatures and uh, remote locations to just have the, is it high enough reliability? Yeah, I mean, they've got the diesel generation in place now. Um, it's actually the perfect kind of place to to move over to a renewable microgrid, and it's something that I've been doing a, a few projects on in, in my work recently, um, helping communities or businesses understand what, what kinds of generation and energy storage would suit their yeah, their particular circumstances, because um, it is very local. I mean, obviously, like you say, Alaska's got problems with the oh, challenges with the cold. But um, it, it, the fact that they're using diesel generators now is is a it's a good starting point because diesel is really expensive, and so you can get really fast paybacks, um, really huge uh, economic benefits. If you've got a semi-decent renewable energy resource, then you don't need to replace all the diesel at once. It's not a matter of saying, "Okay, we're going to, you know, throw the diesel generators into landfill and um, <laughs> switch tomorrow to 100% renewables." You would. First of all, do the easy parts first. So you'd put in some wind turbines um, that, you know, probably you would size that to have the peak around about what the, you know, the, the load is in the in, in the community where you're using it and you just displace as much diesel as you can and that will give you a really, really fast, really nice payback. And then from there you can gradually add more and more generation and then you're going to have to also start to have to add some storage if you um if you get a lot of a lot of wind to be able to supply on average your your needs, um, and you just gradually phase out the diesel, and I would probably leave some leave some diesel generation capacity there for the <laughs> sure. times when you know maybe you you've got it there in case you have a weird two three week period where you have very low wind speeds, or if you've got some unanticipated icing event that shuts down all your wind turbines, then you would have a backup. But, you know, any electricity generation system needs some redundancy and some, you know, different, um, yeah, different forms of generation. Otherwise, you know, diesel generators, uh, they have unexpected maintenance requirements too, or, you know, anything can. So, sure. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a really good place. So it sounds like distributed wind and smaller commercial turbines, um, more so onshore than offshore is probably maybe the future solution for some of these microgrids. Yeah, I think so. I don't think you would worry about the complexity of uh, of offshore and um, you know uh, being one of the early test beds for a new technology. If you if you if you're small, um, that doesn't make sense. In yeah, in a decade, then maybe we'll be at the point where it's no big deal to roll out an offshore wind turbine. But if there's lots of space around, um, which you know they almost by definition is, if you've got a microgrid, then um, you probably got no reason not to put in um, an onshore small onshore wind farm. Well, I imagine the window in which you could install these is probably pretty narrow, right? Just because seasonally, a there's so much snow on the ground part of the year a large chunk of the year. And then when that's thawing out, the ground's probably too soft to build. I mean, Alan, is that? Yeah, what I've seen in Alaska, it's kind of transitions from frozen to, to mud to frozen again. It's it's not the easiest place to live. And yeah, just face it, it's just a difficult environment. And, but people love it. And and if, uh, 
if we can get some renewable energy up there and there, and then that's fantastic. I, I just, you know, the, the thing that worries me about it all is we don't necessarily design things, equipment of any kind to, to, to survive in Alaska. It's one of those rare exceptions, right? Uh, we don't design it for the 95th percentile case. Alaska is that last 5% <laughs> for most things uh, in temperature variations, snow, polar bears, the whole thing, right? And elk, uh, reindeer, whatever else. So you have to you have to worry about that stuff. And uh, you know, I, Rosemary, I thought about you the other day because there's some uh, pictures on LinkedIn about uh, goats and kangaroos hopping on solar panels. I thought, oh my gosh, this is just like Alaska, right? Because you just can't control the animals. And all it take is, you know, one polar bear to push over a wind turbine and that, that would be that. And, and, and so it just, it's just one of those weird things. Like, uh, you know, you have to design it. Is that a realistic thing that can happen? Are they big enough? Are these small enough? Well, I see the, the wind turbines. The wind turbines I've seen. I'm into it. I'm into it. The wind turbines I've seen in Alaska have not been megawatt size. They've been lower kilowatt size uh, because it does, uh, you know, in these smaller communities, they don't use a lot of power. They just don't. Uh, and so the wind turbines don't tend to be like what you would see on a small American farm. And that's what you would see up in Alaska. And because the cost is lower too. So it's sort of an economic play. And yeah, that's what I wonder. Like if, if I spent, you know, 50 grand on a wind turbine, do I have, would it survive the season? That's a really good question because I don't know. But a lot of those issues are things that they have to deal with with all of their infrastructure that's in place. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, well, like every time they pour a foundation, they they know what time of year they can pour a foundation <laughs> and what they have to do yeah. differently. And I mean, I know lubricants don't work the same at those temperatures. Even my yeah. my brother's in Montreal, and when he moved there, he's like, "Oh, my my bike bike chain lubricant is solid <laughs> in the winter time." Okay, that's that's interesting. Um, so yeah, yeah. everything. It, it, you're right that it changes everything, but on the other hand, people have been living there a long time and they're probably already quite used to what sorts of yeah. changes need to be made to make it work in Alaska and you. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. If 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 it's true that the conditions are so extreme that they're, they're not fitting into the cold weather package that wind turbine manufacturers offer, which usually goes down to a minus 30 degree operation mm. and a bit lower for survival temperature. Um, yeah, if it's... If it doesn't survive that, then they would need, yeah, separate separate designs, special for Alaska, and uh, I would assume some local experts would work together with the manufacturer to find something <laughs> that would work. Um, but I definitely don't think it's a, you know, like an abnormal engineering challenge. Maybe it will add some cost to the the first generation, but no reason to stop them going down that path in the long run. Mm. Maybe they just douse everything in Yeti scent, and then the polar bears know that. <laughs> Stay away. Don't mess it's with been Yeti. claimed already. Yeah. So. Is that where the Yetis yeah. are in yeah. Alaska? We don't really know. They're wherever they want to be <laughs> and they don't they don't want you to know exactly. where they are. So yeah. Need to know basis. Uh, moving on, let's talk about GE Energy. So they've had a, a pretty rough um, years they've reported a $795 million uh, loss in 2021, which was in stark contrast with a pretty darn good year in 2020, as the company's been slowly turning around and, and also changing. Um, Alan, they've been hit by, obviously, supply chain woes, as everyone has, which we'll discuss. But w- what sticks out as being the real pain points for GE and how do you think they're going to fix them? Going forward in 2022, yeah, you know, with the the breakup of GE happening, I, I wonder how much work they're going to do to stabilize the renewable energy piece of that 
company because they're all headed to really three separate divisions, uh, healthcare, aviation, which is basically jet engines and power. Uh, at least I think those are the three, right? Uh, yeah, that, those are the three. So the the renewable energy sector part of it has been over the last year just struggling a little bit and their and their book orders for 2022 um are not where i thought they would be interestingly enough uh, and that makes you makes you wonder what's happening is it just because ge is pulling back going to be a little more cautious they can't overextend themselves as they transition to a separate entity conserving cash sort of scenario, which it may be, uh, or, or is it just an, an indicator that the market is slowing down, that um, the unknowns of the supply chain are starting to spook investors and buyers to the point where they're, they need to take a six-month detour and figure out where the economy is going to be? Because these are, as Rosemary knows, these are sort of long-term projects. Like you pay for the project, a lot of it up front, and then you make energy three, four, five years later, in that three or four or five year period, it gets a little scary if inflation's at 10%. I mean, I don't know how you even set that up and try to account for it because it, it gets get super scary. And I think GE's feeling that pressure right now. Yeah. And they're hopeful to continue to deliver, well, or deliver high single digit margins and their margins were actually better in 2021, which was encouraging. And it, it appears they attribute that to being more selective with with which projects they take on, not just trying to win every single bid, even if the margin's low, but rather holding back and you know saying, hey, this one's not right for us and going after ones that are more profitable. Um, yeah, it, it seems like it's going to be a difficult road ahead. I mean, Rosemary, what are some of the supply chain issues that um, it looks like companies will continue to face? I think it's the same as what you're seeing everywhere. Um, you know, like the cost of, I was reading an article in the paper on the weekend, the cost of used cars in Australia are up by about 50% because um, people can't get new cars, so people are buying new. And in some cases, uh, people are paying more for a one-year-old car now than what it sold for new last year. Um, so, you know, like it's steel, for example, chips for cars at least i don't know how much of a problem that is for wind turbines it's but just so many so many things like that um we see the same thing in um construction uh, we're having a bit of a, a construction boom you know for residential housing prices have gone up 50 50 percent and you know like timbers doubled um steel's up 50 or 60 percent or something and um you see just the exact like nearly the exact same story that i'm reading with wind turbine manufacturers who are having to go back and renegotiate contracts because the prices have for their materials have gone up so much i read nearly the exact same article about home builders who you know they agreed on a renovation um 18 months ago and now it's like well okay the cost of materials is nearly double what it was so it's going to cost you 50 percent more for this project it's like it's it's the exact same article being written about every single industry it seems so i'm not sure that it's so so specific to the wind industry and i know that developers are, are, are desperate for more wind turbines i was talking to one last week who you know they've got this um They've got a pipeline of, of multiple gigawatts. And if you look at the amount that Australia is going to need just to replace the coal power plants, which are, are, are almost certainly going to close, um, you know, earlier than expected, there's just, there's not enough in the pipeline and people can't get the turbines to build the projects that they've got 
committed necessarily. So I think there's going to be a massive crunch in the the next few years. It's going to start to cause problems. Which maybe on the on the buying side though, on the, on the purchase of energy, aren't the energy buyers under that same sort of pressure? Like they don't want energy prices to jump up without some sort of limitation here. Uh, I, I I would see the energy buyers being pushing back on the on the wind turbine side too and saying, hey, look, we may have you're trying to increase prices on us, which is what's going to happen, and we can't we can't do that. And I, it, it, there's a little bit of give and take here. Does that stall? A project because the energy buyers is just saying, hey, there's a limit here. We'll, we'll go. I think so. But I think everybody is just so squeezed that kind of everybody feels that they're being taken advantage of. Um, but on the other hand, everybody, everybody's doing it tough because, yeah, when um, wind turbine manufacturers are, are saying to their customers, the price has gone up and, you know, it sounds like an opportunistic thing to do because the, you know, the developer has in many cases no choice. Um, to change their manufacturer towards the end of a you know project once all their approvals sure. are in place. You can't just go back to square one and start again with a new manufacturer. So it feels like, yeah, you've got no choice but to do what you know Big Wind says. But on the other hand, you look at the profit margins on all of the manufacturers and they're so close to zero and sometimes on the wrong side of zero. Right. So you can't say anybody's really, you know, having a, a great time with this <laughs> with this supply well, chain problem. Yeah, and at, at some point you know, you reach, I know you, you think there's somewhat of a, of a quote unquote free market in energy production and the sale of energy, but there's really not. At some point, there's a there's a government that sits in there and regulates prices to the general consumer like us, and, and if if the the price of energy starts rising, I I think the the local and state Governments, and particularly in the United States, will start pushing back and saying, "Hey, look, you know, we we have a we our economy will not, will not support these rising energy prices. You got to go figure out something else." Are, are, do you start to feel that yet? Because to me, it's that murmuring is starting to happen. They they can sort of predict the future here: ten percent, seven, ten percent rate of inflation. It doesn't take long before the average person really starts to get hurt in that. Yeah, but it's not just. Energy is not just wind turbines. I think it would be hard to single out um, any one industry as you know, say, oh, you can't increase your prices while inflation is, is high everywhere. Um, and when you can just demonstrate that their profits are, are not going up uh, in tandem with their prices, you, you know, so um, uh, I don't know. I'm no economist, but I would, I would struggle to see a situation like that. Um, eventuating when it's just an economy-wide problem and, and global problem as well. It's not just, you know, one location or another. It's mm. everyone around the world in any industry is having trouble right now if they need to source physical materials to provide their service. Well, Alan, can you trace this back? Because I still have a foggy understanding about how everyone in the world has supply chain issues. I mean, it's not like we have less trees than we did before COVID. We have more trees than ever, <laughs> sure, probably. Yeah, probably did, yeah. um, you know, if we have... In, increasing egg prices, you know, you'd say, okay, well, what's up with the chickens? How much does the feed cost? Well, why'd the feed, why'd the feed increase in price? Yeah. Well, the feed increase because of this, well, why that? I mean, it ultimately goes back to some source. I mean, where is this all coming from? Why is everything becoming more expensive? And It's sort of a combination of the supply chain has been broken, particularly in the United States, I'd say. Uh, 
There is a huge amount of uh, cargo containers off the coast of, of America that have, un have not unloaded goods. That creates a shortage. And at the same time, uh, the federal government in the states has poured a lot of cash into the economy, trillions of dollars into the economy. So you have a, a, a flood of cash. You don't have enough goods. That's a recipe for inflation. And for whatever reason, I can't grasp yet. We haven't addressed it at all. We seem to be just looking the other way. In the meantime, we have another, uh, maybe the United States is unique in this. So there must be other regulatory bodies in Australia and the UK and Sweden that do similar things. But here it's the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve sets the interest rates between banks, essentially as banks deal with one another. And they've already scheduled, or at least the, the plan is to have four interest rates this year alone to slow down the economy. The, the problem is that inflation is still going to rise in that interim. And, but what will happen, you'll see downward pressure like on the stock market. So people's investments will go down and uh, you'll see upward pressure on prices still until it all settles out. In the meantime, it hurts like hell. And this isn't the first rodeo that I've been through in, in this kind of U.S. economy, but for it, it's not fun. It really is not fun. And we're, we're heading into uh, a, a, a couple of years struggle. I think we really are. And if and I think maybe Rosemary and I agree on this sort of piece where if we think climate is an existential threat and that's the common belief. I think uh, you're really going to hurt renewable energy. That's when it's going to get hammered because you're competing with things that already exist. And there will come a point in time where states will push back and the United States will start pushing back and say, we're just not going to do it. And I think there's be countries that are going to say the same thing. If the cost of fuel is... Rising as well, obviously, like a, you might already yeah. have a coal plant, power plant, or a gas power plant, but yeah. they don't have all the fuel they need for the next <laughs> the next decade. So I think um, the it's not so it's not so black and white about which which way it will go because I mean we have seen just such a huge oh, sure. increase in gas prices and um, yeah, coal is really struggling, especially in Australia. We had articles just yesterday about you know everyone is now expecting the coal power plants to. Um, close much earlier than they said because there's just no no line of sight to profitability for them in a you know very short time. Um, well, so, every yeah. country is different, right? I think America was energy independent about six months ago, and we decided we weren't going to be anymore. Uh, so that leads to a lot of concern, right? And so there's going to be a lot of arguments in the United States, like what happened? Why did we do that? Why did we do that to ourselves? I think there's a lot of countries doing the same thing right now. I think Germany's asking the same question. I think there's many places that are asking that same question of a year ago, we were just fine. What happened? And how are we going to try to deal with it? And in the absence of, I think, leadership in the case of the United States at the moment, you're going to get a lot of of, of people stepping into that void. And that's where it gets a little scary. So one interesting thing that's happening in the market right now with, with stocks is that a lot of hedge funds are shorting uh, renewable energy stocks. And of course, if you don't know what shorting is or short selling, it's when you essentially borrow uh, a stock and sell it, and then you purchase it later at a lower price, or you hope that it's a lower price. So an example would be, you know, you buy a stock for $100 a share, 
um, you're, or you're borrowing a stock for $100 a share, um, you sell that and then you say, say it's one share, you sell that one share for $100 and then a period of time later, you have the option to buy that back if it declines or you hope that it declines. So you buy it back for $50 a share. Now you've sold it for 100 Now that it's declined, you buy it for 50 and you've pocketed the $50 difference. So you bet sort of the wrong way, whereas you know, a typical stock trade, you hope you buy it at 50 and hope it goes up, right? So, Alan, a lot of hedge funds right now are betting against sure. um, renewable energy stocks, yeah. and they're shorting them. And part of the reason is, here's one quote um, from this article in the Financial Times. It says, uh, by Barry Norris, chief investment officer at Argonaut Capital, he says, in a bear market, a company doesn't trade at 60 times earnings just because it does something morally good. Um, and we have seen a lot of stocks that are inflated very high above what their actual uh, financial value might be. So, I mean, do you see this trend continuing? And I mean, that's true. I mean, a lot of people, when you think of the stock market, you always think the price is permanently, you know, tethered to the stock price. Like what their revenue is, is tethered. So it's always a logical, some people try to argue that stock, the stock market is always logical and it's clearly not, <laughs> right? You hear, and I think Tesla has been a good example. Yeah. Uh, Tesla would rise and fall substantially in a day based on Elon Musk's tweetings <laughs> or doings. You know, when he tweets at 4 p.m., did the value of the company go up? No, but the stock was up 5% because people are excited about something he said or something he didn't say or something he alluded or hinted at. And so the, the pressure of like, oh, I want more of this, supply and demand, the price goes right. up. Um, <laughs> but this idea that, you know, people want to own, um, you know, renewable energy stocks because they do uh, do, a, do a good thing for the, the globe, for right. the world. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're worth what they purport to be. Alan, what's your take on, on the short selling with renewable energy? The stock market is basically trying to forecast or fortune tell six months out in the future on the, on the economy. That's really what it does. And when you have a number of institutional investors short selling any stock, they're saying that they're betting that the whole thing is going to go down. And based on the numbers right now, if you start looking at the, the, uh, the, the releases, the quarterly releases on their profitability of, of any large industrial company, maybe except Tesla, uh, they're not forecasting increasing profits. They, they're, in, they're, they're saying they're likely to take a loss or just to break even. And the stock market's saying, well, that means that the ability to pay dividends essentially goes to zero. That's what'll happen. And there's no chance of a buyback. And therefore my my value of my stock is 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 less than what it's going to be today. That's the problem with inflation. I think that's the huge driver here that it, it may seem like we have a, a temporary bubble because of COVID, but that temporary fluctuation in the economy is really turning into more of a longer term problem. And the stock market is going to start saying that. If you start looking at the stocks for Siemens Gamesa, Nordex, Vestas, uh, even GE in some measure, they're going down. I mean, they're, they're going down like 30% down over year to year. That's a huge drop. And it's it should be sending off alarm bells to investors and to the companies themselves like this has got to get right, and we need to start putting pressure on the, the, the basically the, the government leaders that have some say in this to, to stop the bleeding. Because if they don't, we're, we're going to have 
bigger and bigger problems. And and when I say bigger, bigger problems, you, you could lose a wind turbine manufacturing. You really can't do that right now. That, that would be not the right place to be. Uh, but we don't, I mean, our view in the United States is totally different from outside the United States, I'm sure. But what it looks like in the United States is that we're just saying, hey, oh, you know, we're, it'll work its way out. That's not historically what happens. That's worrisome to me. And I, I hope that, uh, you know, when the winter community and the, and the CEOs start pushing back and saying, we need to raise prices, we need to get the shipping issues resolved, we need stability in steel, we need stability in, uh, in fiberglass, we need stability on uh, large machinery, that they're not kidding, <laughs> right? Uh, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of jobs that are affected here. It's time to, to, to step up and to do something about it. And I just, you know, Rosemary, I'm sure have a different opinion of it. I don't, I don't see a lot of action right yet. And if we let it sit for another six months, we're really going to be in trouble. I've actually been surprised by this, um, this talk of shorting and the companies that they were talking about, which is, what was it like Nordex and yeah, the, the manufacturers not, um, because I, I have noticed, I mean, one, there's been nothing to do with your, your money, um, over the, the past few years other than put it in the stock market because, you know, like I looked up term deposit rates recently and it's like, oh, you can have 0.1% and we'll lock away your money for, for two years. <laughs> well, okay. I'll just keep it in the bank and, and have that, that flexibility. So you want any chance at, at getting a, um, increase, then, you know, you either have to buy, buy property, which is the favorite way to make money in Australia, or you sure. have to put it in the stock market. So I have definitely sensed that the, the stock market, I can totally get that it, it is overpriced in general. And I have noticed that um, everybody is desperate to make green investments and there's not that many places to to put your, your money for, for green technologies. But I haven't I have for at least a decade, I've owned a lot of green stocks like, you know, like Vestas and Siemens and, um, and also just a global wind index and a global solar index. And those have never gone well. They, you know, they, they've gone up, but not as much as you would think, given that, you know, like I bought all those way before this huge boom in um, renewables. So that's why I'm surprised to see that these are the ones that are being shorted now. Like, have, have they really been overvalued so much to to start with? And I, I guess it's, you know, got to do with the fact that those companies are not, they're, they're really struggling with their profitability right now, even as installations are going up and up and up. But where I do see heaps of, of froth in the um, clean tech <laughs> area is is these, you know, like brand new energy technologies that have been listing through SPACs and, you know, there's some energy technologies that are just like basically at prototype stage and already listing and in many cases just demonstrably bad ideas that the, you know, the physics and the engineering just isn't there for it to ever, ever be a good idea. And you see quite a few companies like that, that have very high values. And um, yeah, I, I would absolutely, if I was, you know, into uh, shorting stocks and more, you know, maybe more of a, a risk taker, then I would be shorting those kinds of um, stocks for sure, because it's ridiculous. But the problem is with shorting, it's not enough to know that something's eventually going to go down. You have to be able to hold your position until it goes down. So, you know, who can say how how long <laughs> how long this will go on for? If it's years, then even if you pick the right direction, you're still going to lose money. So, um, yeah, that's why I stay away from that. But yeah, no, I have been surprised <laughs> that that the shorting is happening in the companies that are actually making things that people want to buy. Um, that, that to me is well, surprising. Rose, Rosemary, I think that this is the most visible 
indicator, right? They're the most the, the most visible companies out there. It's hard to miss GE. It's hard to miss Vestas, right? I think they're the most visible signs of for the wind energy side, the most visible companies, uh, rather than the Dominions or the Duke Energies that may be using these wind turbines. The OEMs are very vis very visible, and it doesn't take uh, too much of an economist to figure out they have supply chain issues, and they, and you can kind of sense of the price of steel, the price of some of those raw materials going in. We can just check up online and see what those are. We know the economics for those companies is not going to go in the right direction over the next six months, year, two years. And, and so it's easy for uh, stock pickers, economists to do the math on an Excel spreadsheet and roughly predict where they're going to be. And they're not going to be too far off. I, th I think it's going to be trouble. And we, we need, to, I can't say this hard enough, we need to be addressing something now. And I just haven't heard any real leadership in the United States on this issue yet. Yeah. As for me, like I, I've been interested in um, renewable energy. Obviously, the more you know about a sector, the better. Um, and I, I believe in some of these companies, but I haven't decided to invest. I don't invest in any of them, um, mostly because of this. It seems like they're it's just like uncertain waters. Like you said, Rosemary, it seems like, hey, a great time. Like if you know a lot about renewable energy, you're pretty up on these projects. Like, you, you know, it's not hard to figure out that there's going to be a lot of wind turbines sold and wind farms built uh, in the next couple of years, but it's just not clear that the margins are going to be there and that these are going to be profitable businesses. Um, whereas uh, for me, and I, I haven't done much digging here, but um, I've been looking at some of the peripherals and some of like the vendors who might be selling like a good example. And I don't own stock in this company either is Timken, um, maker of bearings, right? So you start to think of some of the peripheral parts that go into these turbines and you wonder, does a company that's selling to a GE or a Nordex, um, are they in a better position financially? Are they having better margins? Probably. Um, and they might be your sort of way into supporting renewable energy. And again, I don't have any stakes in any of these companies um, where that might be a, a good inroad. It's hard to, hard to know, but you know that's why everyone should do their own research. Um, we're obviously not giving any guidance on what stocks to pick. <laughs> Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's kind of the wild west right now because, you know, you've seen stocks go up and down so much recently, especially down here in late January. And it's hard to know whether that's because of uh, legitimate financial forecasts or if that's just because of the irrationality, uh, of the stock market and other factors and the fear. Cause I mean, how many of us saw the stock market crash back in March, 2020 with COVID and the fear that set in, but then you're like six months later, you're like kicking yourself that you didn't buy pretty much any stock in the world, right? So um, this could be just one of those another down periods now. Um, and I guess we'll see when inflation starts to starts to slow a little bit. Uh, so last on the docket here today, um, interesting accolade for Vestas, speaking of them, they've been named the most sustainable company in the world uh, for 2021 um, by corporate nights. So uh, Rosemary, what does this mean? That's just something that I find it kind of like a nebulous distinction, but I'm sure it has. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, thought and metrics behind it. I have been really pleased to see this, um, you know, kind of shift in corporate culture where uh, in many cases I see that it is the big companies that are leading the way on ambitious environmental outcomes. You know, they're the ones yes. that are uh, paying over the odds for a, a power purchase agreement for, you know, helping to um, make new wind and solar developments, uh, you know, financially viable for developers. And you see like Google is um, has their 24-7 green energy project where they're actually doing, you know, a lot of really smart smart work to reduce their 
their impact and, you know, not just through the, through buying offsets, but they're actually looking at, you know, where and, and when are we using electricity and how can we shift that so that we can get the highest possible proportion of that green. And oh, I know um, IKEA in Australia is one of the first adopters of um, electric delivery vehicles. So, you know, they're helping oh, wow. drive technology for electric trucks and it's, um, <laughs> it's not much more expensive, but it's, you know, it's basically because I don't know. I, I felt this way. We've been ordering so much more online during the pandemic and it does make you feel a little bit gross to, to think about, um, you know, the, the impact of that. So I, I'm definitely more likely to choose a, a company that's delivering with, you know, with, with clean, clean deliveries. And my supermarket will offer me one window per day where it's a green delivery where they've got an electric truck. So yeah, I, I have been pleased to see this this move. And in Australia, it's definitely a bigger move from corporate than the government towards um, sustainability. So, yeah, no, you're right that it is is definitely a pleasing development to see. And good work. Good work, Vestas. <laughs> Won the award. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up there. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate you. Um, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, wherever you are. And of course, definitely subscribe to Uptime Tech News and subscribe to Rosemary's YouTube channel. Again, both you'll find in the description of this podcast. Uh, Thanks again for listening. We'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. This is why it just makes sense to install a WeatherGuard Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your technicians are going up tower. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.